Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Appreciative Scholar podcast. I'm Cameron Barlow, and today we'll be discussing the research and scholarship of Dr. Catherine Zubko, Interim Director of Humanities, NEH Distinguished Professor of the Humanities, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and Editor of the Body and Religion Journal. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Will you uh, share with us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So I am a scholar of Asian religious traditions. I study ritual and performance and embodied practices within lived traditions. I'm a trained anthropologist. Um, That's part of a very interdisciplinary kind of approach within the field of religious studies. Uh, So my latest research has been put a little bit on the back burner, but it's really stemming from ethnographic fieldwork I conducted in India uh, in 2018. Um, So at the time, I was uh, in Chennai, India, which is in the southern part of India, and there's a huge music and dance festival around a very traditional kind of set of art forms that um, are both music traditions and dance traditions that work together with each other. Most of those dance traditions, um, and I'm more interested in the dance traditions um, in terms of my research, um, have come out of a Hindu temple tradition uh, and a court tradition. And a lot of those dances, their storytelling dances that use gestures um, would tell stories of Hindu gods and goddesses. So there were religious reasons for these dances, and then they also transferred over into court settings in which the king um, was often seen as connected to the sacred and the divine in different ways. So there's been a lot of changes, and I'm going to fast forward through and not talk about the changes because that's not where I spend time with my research. I'm much more interested in the research question around what are dancers and performers doing now in the contemporary period with this dance form that has ancient kind of roots um, and a whole set of dance grammars to use, but a lot of the dancers that I'm now spending time with want to um, kind of really address very contemporary issues. So that's what I was doing on my field work. I was looking at dance productions, like I would go through the newspaper and see what were the programs being offered, and there was like over 30 or 40 on any given day during the festival, so I'd see what people are putting out there for performances, and anything that had to do with environmental issues, issues around um, the treatment of women, Um, there were um, aspects related to um, caste, so anything that had kind of a social social flavor or focus on it is something that I wanted to go see and to begin to track how dancers kind of adapt the dance form to be able to address those themes and in what ways. So that's kind of the the basis of kind of a whole body of ethnographic research that I'm then now breaking down into what pieces do I want to write articles about. Mm-hmm. So. so you said that the field work was in India, mm-hmm. but does it since most, um, well not most, but since so many people are global now, are, is your, does your research extend into n- non-localized groups? In, like- yeah, very much so. Uh, I think you're, you're right, Cameron, that um, a lot of these dancers, this is a globalized dance form. We have people who perform this dance form in, in outside of India as part of the diaspora. Uh, and 
So for one example is I followed one dance troupe that performed in Chennai, India, and then followed up that summer because they went on tour in the UK to perform the same piece. Cool. So in some ways I, I had two locations for that ethnographic research, which was really fun. Um, so yeah, this is something that it's, it's interesting to see which dancers placed in which places are wanting to do particular social kind of, they call it kind of social issues, but I mean, there are aspects of social justice around what they're, what they're up to. Mm -hmm. so. and, and maybe how their ideas of caste and um, the differences between gender in their own culture are affected by diaspora. Uh, production of their art or of their ritual. Very much so. Um, and it's been interesting to track some of the programs on gender, uh, in part because the assumption is, well, if you're in the diaspora and you've been exposed to maybe different aspects around gender identity, um, and there's a sense that maybe it'd be more kind of open-ended, but sometimes we actually see the opposite impact where here's this very traditional dance form that's now out in the diaspora um, and people see it as so traditional that they kind of lock down and, mm -hmm. and kind of want to only do the very traditional pieces. So it's really this interesting back and forth between the diaspora and uh, the diasporic populations and those doing the work in India. Um, and I will say that a lot of folks involved in this dance form today are from upper class and they are very mobile. So they are moving around all the time as well with families that are both inside and outside of India. So that has an impact as right. well. It has its own kind of socio-political or socio-economic um, touch points. Very much so. And I think I should probably note that the history of this is really problematic in terms of socioeconomic changes that happened in the 1930s. Uh, and I would say that a lot of what I'm starting to see develop now um, are trying to address some of that socioeconomic, um, I mean, it's a form of violence against people who used to perform this dance form who were hereditary. So a lot of that's starting to bubble up much more intentionally in the performances themselves. Mm -hmm. And who's representing the performance? globally exactly um, versus who's who has like a lineage to represent the performance exactly and, and but is, is it mobile maybe very much so so it's um, it's complicated yeah so. <laughs> it's fascinating and so does that does the do the performances kind of come from people who have their primary residence in India or is that I don't know if that's maybe even an important question but does this happen with people who have are multi-generational families within another country? Do they pick up these practices? Yeah, it's definitely become multi-generational even in these new kind of post-1930 trajectories where you have mothers and daughters. It tends to also be mostly performed by women, but also there are, there are a few men that also have lineages. Um, so it has become generational, <laughs> for sure. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, actually, I, I don't think I talked about the article that I've been most involved with recently, mm -hmm. which is about that dance program I saw in Chennai that also I tracked in the UK, and that was a dance production that was all on refugee experience, um, and it was created by a dance um, director and group that was based in Singapore. 
Uh, but his family had fled from Sri Lanka during the civil war there, and he himself had been a refugee from that civil war. So I think he drew on a lot of his own experiences, and then his dancers, who had no experience of ref refugee experience, they went through this whole process so that they could begin to um, appropriately like feel certain things in their body because this these gestures um, are related to the expression of emotion and rasa which is us like these different kinds of sentiments that are kind of central to the dance form so how do you get into that space with your dancers and do it as an ensemble was a really interesting process to interview him about. And so pretty much I watched several programs, I, watched, I, I got invited to rehearsals, which is part of the fun of like, you start hanging out enough and then asking questions and then you know sometimes things open up, which is nice. Uh, and then interviewing some of the dancers and the director and then some of the audience members who had watched both in Chennai but also in the UK. So. And do the, do the dance forms change with like, um, you know, because you mentioned refugees, I imagine that transgenerational trauma, I don't know if that's part of the research you're doing, but mm -hmm. how that plays out in the expression of emotion in, mm -hmm. in the dance form, I don't, does it, is it, because you know, you said that it was traditional, so I imagine that the, the gestures probably remain yeah, so, yeah, that's a good question. The, the gestures, there's a really solid vocabulary that's very fluid. Uh, and so I think part of it is redeploying known gestures into new contexts in a way that audience members would still understand what's being conveyed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that gets lost in translation, but this is where having kind of there's all these trappings around productions that help the translation process of bodied movement. So you have, you know, programs that kind of keep track of where where right. you're at, and then you get sometimes voiceovers that explain a few things. But it's interesting. I I think um, in some cases the gestures do have to shift because they are so known to be connected to a particular thing that it wouldn't actually work to redeploy it, right? So, mm -hmm. for example, there are gestures that are so connected to the gods Shiva and Vishnu and, you know, goddess, you know, different goddess embodiments that the minute a dancer would perform one of those gestures, it might create some dissonance if you're in kind of a different topic or a different thing that you're trying to tell a story about. However, now that I've said that out loud, I would also say that that also can be very powerful to invoke gods and goddesses as part of, um, as an overlay, as part of the multi-layers that are going on in the embodiment of these stories. And so, does that become problematic in, uh, like if, they're, if these dances are performed in places where people are, they don't identify as Hindu maybe, or? That's why the UK, the UK audience was interesting <clears throat> because there were definitely people in that audience that would, probably did not identify as Hindu. Mm. Um, much more uh, kind of skewed toward, well, it was about half Caucasian, half um, kind of folks of South Asian descent. And that's just a brief look. I didn't ask people directly or survey people. Whereas in Chennai, you know, there's just like two or three white folks. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I would imagine that it could tie into your, the journal that you're now editor of, Body and Religion. Um, did, has it, has it been incorporated in that? I don't know. Well, so um, before I took on editing Body and Religion Journal, uh, 
I was part of a symposium on the imagined body at Elon University. I think that's that was in spring, February 2019, and it was a peer-reviewed, like proposal-based um, kind of symposium that I was invited to come to, or my proposal was accepted. And so there's going to be a volume that comes out of that, but part of that was interesting is they also before I was editor had already contacted this journal and made arrangements to kind of send papers through that journal as well. <laughs> so I'm in an interesting position in which my own paper will be published potentially in the journal, but it has to be sent for peer review, not through our own processes, but kind of through yet another external processes to maintain um, kind of confidentiality. Like I shouldn't be involved in my own peer review processes. So it's a little approved. Like, yeah, yeah, approved. Like yeah, straight to production. But um, no, that's that's not how how we work. So um, it, it's it's amusing. It won't come out in the first issue that's coming out um, probably in the next month. We're going to have an issue on the Quran and affect um, that's going to be issued and. Um, then after that, we're going to have our first round. We have to actually split the Elon Symposium down into two different um, issues because there's, some, there's about 12 papers, I think. So, okay. Yeah. And so uh, with your, going back to your uh, ethnographic research, um, your anthropological research, I guess I should say, how is, are, is there any, are you doing any more work on that, like um, up forthcoming, like or planning any forthcoming? I know that with oh, no, that's the great. global situation, it's kind of hard to plan that far out, but. It's true, uh, and yeah, I think it's important to kind of publicly note that because of coronavirus disruptions, a lot of research has had to be put on hold, not just for me, but I hear that from colleagues here at UNCA, but even colleagues in South Asian studies that I'm connected to, uh, and so it'll be interesting as we move forward how these disruptions maybe clarify where we want to put our time. If we only have so much time to dedicate to research, does it say, okay, I'm going to focus on this thing because it's more important to me and let these other things go, which just yesterday I submitted an IRB um, closure protocol on a project that's been going on for six or seven years that I really was like, no, nope, I'm not going to be able to finish that or move that forward. It's also not where I want to put my time right now. I, if I want to pick it up again like a year, few years from now, we'll have to see, but it's just not worth um, kind of pulling in these many different directions like right, right now. Right. So so I would say that the article for the, the, the symposium presentation, I wrote as an article and I just need to finish the last the conclusion really uh, and then send it on to let that peer review process help it happen elsewhere so I guess my paper really isn't quite in the loop for the journal just yet because I haven't finished it um, and then the, the I started another piece that was coming out of that ethnographic field work um, when I came back from India in 2018 that summer I started to gather information about productions around trees because <laughs> there were all of these really interesting dance items in which people were 
I know it probably sounds really strange, but they either embodied trees or they were they were working with forests or I mean I don't know there was just all this pattern that was going on around trees. So I have a lot of information, literature review gathered about trees and and performance around environmental issues, but it is really in various states of fragments and it's been two years since I've looked at it. Right. So like that summer I got a really good running start on it and then I had to change my focus to, I got into that symposium at Elon so I needed to work in that direction and you know normally I would have one or two kind of projects side by side but I think I you know I had too much going on and had to let that just kind of simmer. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I'll return to it because it is really interesting to me. And there's this beautiful performance by Rama Vijayanathan that really just, I said, I have to now really do this article at some point um, because of how she portrayed different aspects related to trees um, that was just stunning. So It's amazing that the, the kind of one traditional form can be used so in such a versatile way to represent so many different... Um, kind of, I mean, ecological issues, environmental issues, like um, human rights issues, that, that it adapts to the needs of the, of the people, with, but still maintains kind of tradition and um, spiritual or religious meaning. That's fascinating. Yeah, so I think that's part of why I'm attracted to spending time with it, is that, in be, like, okay, there's traditional pieces, but there's adaptability, and how do people embody things that matter to them? Um, I mean, I know that Rama, she performed this piece again after um, the cyclone hit Chennai and uprooted like half of the city's trees. <laughs> and she added this piece at like this choreographic improvisation at the end in which she added like the seed planting to replant the trees in Chennai where she was performing because she's not based in Chennai she's based in New Delhi so I was like oh my gosh like what a beautiful response to that moment that she could offer that kind of performed blessing of sorts so I don't know that's partly I'm still very struck by this piece um and so I know I have to get back to it at some point. It won't happen, that one won't happen anytime soon. I've got to wrap up the refugee um, experience one, but yeah, yeah. anyways. That's fascinating. It seems like yeah. there could be a lot of, I mean, it seems like it would be constantly developing, right? I mean, maybe even now performances related to coronavirus or... Yeah. Um, well, I am keeping my eye out for performances on coronavirus because it's true that in the moment people like especially since they've been sheltering in place, they're at home a lot, they're dancers, they wanna be moving and they start experimenting with stuff. And so I am I wish I could go to dance season this December. I don't think travel's gonna be possible and it's also just not a good time for me to be traveling just in terms of academic um, responsibilities right now. But I could, I mean, I can imagine there's going to be some very interesting productions put on if they're able to hold it, right? Like, I think we're all still not sure what that looks like. So the other cool thing about ethnography right now is people are performing on video. Yeah, Zoom performances. Yeah, Yeah, so in some ways that, that could become the basis of some piece that I might write about. So we'll see. Well, I think that um, we're close to time. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your work. It sounds fascinating. Um, 
is there any way that others might be able to get in contact with you if they had, uh, if they wanted to further the discussion or any, any way to find out about your research that you're happy to share? Yeah, so I think um, email is great. So um, feel free to email me at my UNCA address. I'll leave that, that in the You can add to the yeah. site. Um, I don't have a homepage besides my own faculty homepage that just gives a few other publications um, and references to those. Um, hmm. I think that might be it for now. I'm, I'm not a huge social media um, user when it comes to professional or personal life, mm -hmm. uh, but that's, that's probably what I would say. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us and thanks for having me. Contact information from this podcast is available on the show notes page at appreciativescholar.com. If you're interested in the project and would like to get involved, feel free to contact us via the website. Thanks for listening.